One of the items on our family to-do list is to visit the Statue of Liberty sometime soon. We're kind of lame in that way that we have lived in this area for 10 years and we haven't made it down there yet, but that's on the bucket list of things to do sometime soon. And while we're there, I want to make a point to visit the One World Trade Center, formerly known as the Freedom Tower, that was finished a couple of years ago. Haven't been there yet. This building, as I was reading about it this past week, is truly something else. It stands exactly 1,776 feet tall. And of course, that symbolizes the year of our nation's birth in 1776. There's a picture of it right there. It is the tallest building in the Western Hemisphere. At night, it sends out a beacon of light so that people can see it for miles around. It has 104 floors and covers 3.5 million square feet. It was constructed with over 40,000 metric tons of steel and cost around $4 billion. With a building like this, you know that it has to have a massive foundation, right? And that it does. The footprint of the building is a 200 foot by 200 foot concrete base. That is massive. It took as many as 40 concrete trucks just to fill it. That's the size of that foundation. If something is great, I believe that you should always look at its foundation. There must be a strong foundation for the rest of it to hold. That principle holds for all of life. And so when you look at the church... And by the church, I don't mean just our local church, but the universal the church, the church for all ages, the church all around the world that is saying, He is risen, He is risen indeed. I'm talking about that church. When we think about that church, there must be something massively important at its base. Something massive must explain how the disciples change from being totally defeated and distraught and depressed, and fearful of the Jewish and the Roman authorities to boldly proclaiming the Gospel. Something massive must explain how a few Christians spread soon, very quickly, to become a worldwide movement so that now Christians are in every corner of the world, every nation of the world, and number in the hundreds of millions. And all of this spread took place with no inducement, such as a sword or a promise of earthly riches. It was just the message of the Gospel. Something massive must be at the foundation. Something massive must explain the most influential belief system in the world. There must be a massive foundation. And indeed there is. The resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is a foundational belief of the church. It catalyzed these early followers of Christ into a worldwide movement that continues to this day. Friends, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, that resurrection morning 
there would be no Christianity. We would not be sitting here today. Everything hinges on the resurrection. And that's why the church, from its very beginning stages, as it had creeds, statements of its formal beliefs, always included the resurrection. The Apostles' Creed, which wasn't written by the Apostles, but summarizes their teaching, says, the third day He rose again from the dead. The Nicene Creed, which was the first universal church statement of belief from churches all throughout the Roman Empire, says these words, He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day He rose again according to the Scriptures. The church is built on this belief. And friends, there's more to this belief, though, than just what transpired with Jesus in rising from the dead. His resurrection has a tremendous impact on us. In particular, the resurrection of Christ guarantees our future resurrection. Moreover, His resurrection reveals what our future resurrection bodies will be like. In our passage today, the Apostle Paul addresses these very questions and issues. The context of the letter is about 20 years or so after the resurrection of Christ, when Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, where there were some false teachers who were apparently causing trouble, not denying the resurrection of Jesus, but denying that his followers will one day be resurrected. And so in the 15th chapter of the letter, Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ and its incredible significance for you and I. But before looking at that resurrection about Christ, Paul begins, or our resurrection, Paul begins by establishing the trustworthiness of the resurrection of Jesus. The trustworthiness of the resurrection of Jesus. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This will be our passage for the day. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, they should be under the seats there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll pick up in verse 1. So first Paul talks again here about the trustworthiness of the resurrection of Christ. Let's read verses 1 to 4. He's now, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul reminds them of the Gospel that they had heard and believed. Then he relates to them the content of the Gospel in verses 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins, He was buried, and then He rose again. This is... The Gospel. A person must believe this in order to be a Christian, and it is essential that we cling to this belief. Also notice that Paul points out that these events in Jesus' life, they weren't just haphazard events, but they were in accordance with the Scriptures. Did you notice how he says that several times? These were in accordance with the Scriptures. The Old Testament foretold these things centuries before, 
and now Christ was fulfilling the plan that God had established long ago. Now, as I said, Paul wanted to emphasize this, this, this testimony about the resurrection was incredibly trustworthy, right? And so, what he does here is bring up how they were eyewitnesses. It's one thing for one person to claim something, right? But it's another thing when there's a whole host of eyewitnesses. It adds tremendous credibility to the thing that was being claimed. And so then Paul shifts over in verses 5 to 8 to talk about the various eyewitnesses. That Jesus, after his resurrection, sometimes he appeared to individuals, sometimes he appeared to groups. It says in verses 5 and following, And then he appeared to Cephas, and that was Peter, his Aramaic name, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which was a metaphor for death. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Jesus appeared to all of the apostles. He appeared to his brother James. And then he appeared to 500 people. You might say, why is this remarkable that Paul is mentioning these things? It's interesting because most of these people would have still been alive at the time Paul was writing this. In other words, it's one thing to claim something when everybody else has died, right? And there's really no one around to refute what you say. But Paul was making this statement when there were plenty of people around to agree or to disagree with his statement. In other words, what Paul is doing here is saying, look, these people are around if you would like to go and ask them whether or not they really saw Jesus from the dead. And he's quite confident that they will tell you, yes, indeed, with my own two eyeballs, I saw the resurrected Jesus. This is not a myth. This isn't some sort of fantasy. This is reality, friends, that Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection of, the dead, of Christ from the dead is incredibly trustworthy. He wants to establish that. He wants that to be embedded in the minds and hearts of these Corinthian readers and for you and I today. Having established that then, Paul shifts gears to discuss several ways in which the resurrection of Christ then impacts you and I. As I mentioned, the Corinthian church, there were some false teachers who were apparently teaching that, yes, Jesus, okay, we believe Jesus died from the dead, but no one else is going to be rising from the dead. So Paul makes this really important point, and I want you to get this. The resurrection of Christ guarantees our future resurrection. The resurrection of Christ guarantees our future resurrection. You say, how so? Well, his resurrection is the down payment or first installment of God's plan to resurrect his people at the end of time. So by knowing that God raised Jesus from the dead, we know that he's going to fulfill the rest of his plan to raise his people from the dead, just like Christ. And to illustrate it, Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. You say, what does that mean? Well, on this day, when a farmer would harvest his crop, there was always the first fruits. This was the first portion of the harvest. It was the first part of the ensuing harvest, right? The first fruits indicated that, yes, there's going to be a coming harvest, and we can bank on it. We can be guaranteed that the rest of the harvest is going to come to pass because we have these first fruits. 
Jesus is the first fruits of our resurrection. He guarantees it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 to 23. I want you to slide down there with me where we read these verses. It says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, a figure, for, figure of speech for death. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. So Jesus' resurrection proves, friend, that death is not the end. It guarantees our resurrected body. We really need to hear this message, don't we? Without Christ, what hope would there be? Death conquers every person. It is a certainty of life. No one escapes death. No one. I'm sure most of you have heard of Harry Houdini, right? He was probably the most famous magician and uh, escape artist of his time, maybe of all time. And Harry Houdini could escape from anything. He escaped from handcuffs, jail cells, straitjackets. He escaped from coffins. During one stunt, they literally buried him under six feet of dirt, and he made it barely. He got out, but he survived. He escaped. During another instance, he was put in a packing crate. He was handcuffed. They had leg irons put on him. They wrapped the box with rope, and then they put 200 pounds of lead, and they dropped it in the East River in New York. He escaped in 57 seconds. His most famous act was the Chinese water torture cell. That's a picture of him. They would lock his feet in stocks there. They would suspend him, and then they would put him in this glass tank full of water. And they would lock his feet up at the top and they would lock the container. And he escaped every single time. But Houdini died in 1926 of a ruptured appendix. He told his wife, Bess, before that, that if anyone could cross the boundary of death, it would be him. And he and his wife agreed that if he found it possible to communicate after death, he would send her a secret code on the anniversary of his death. And so Beth held yearly seances, hoping to communicate with Harry. Nothing came to pass. And so on the 10th anniversary of his death, there was a widely publicized seance that she participated with at a, on the rooftop of a hotel in Los Angeles. And it failed. Interestingly, Bess had kept a candle burning beside a photograph of Houdini since his death. And on that night, she put it out. She said, Houdini did not come through. My last hope is gone. I do not believe that Houdini can come back to me or to anyone. She went on to say, The Houdini shrine has burned for ten years. I now reverently turn out the light. It is finished. Good night, Harry. Even the great Houdini could not escape death. 
All we see is the finality of death, except in one instance. Someone did come back from the dead. Therefore, we should listen to his claims and the promises that he makes. And he promises that because of his resurrection, we will be resurrected too. Amen? So the resurrection of Christ guarantees our future resurrection. Now, apparently the church of Corinth had questions about how our present bodies, which we all know are riddled with sickness and injury and disease, could live forever. Seems kind of impossible. But they misunderstood what our resurrection bodies will be like. And that leads to the second way that Christ's resurrection impacts us. The resurrection of Christ reveals the nature of our resurrection body. The resurrection of Christ reveals the nature of our resurrection body. In other words, our resurrection bodies are not going to be the same as what we have here. They're not going to be carbon copies. <laughs> so as he did before, Paul makes a comparison with Adam and Christ. The body of Adam was perishable. The body of Christ is imperishable. The body of Adam, which we're all a part of, has mortal bodies. All those in Christ will one day have immortal bodies. As I said, Paul was making a comparison with Adam and with Christ. And I said there in verses 47 and 49, we read Paul give this comparison between Adam and Christ. It's really powerful. Read these words with me in verses 47 to 49. says in verse 47, The first man, speaking of Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also those who are of the dust. And is the man of heaven, so also those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Our future bodies are not going to be like our current bodies in the likeness of Adam but we'll be in the likeness of Christ. Go a little bit further from what Paul says here. We can learn what our resurrection bodies will be like by looking at Jesus' resurrection body. The disciples saw Jesus' body numerous times after he rose from the dead. And interestingly, there were similarities and there were also differences before his body when he died and when he rose from the dead. And I think we can expect a resurrected body that is likewise going to have both similarities and differences. You say, well, what are the similarities? Well, after Jesus was raised from the dead, his body was still made of flesh and bones. When Jesus saw the disciples after the resurrection, they wondered if he was just a spirit, right? Not really flesh and bones. And so Jesus says to them in Luke 24, 39, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So friends, we're not going to spend eternity as just merely spirits, but we will be spirits now resurrected as well. And also our bodies are going to generally resemble what we look like now, meaning that we're going to have the same race, the same gender, and generally look like we do now. Remember how the disciples, when they saw Jesus, they recognized Him. 
So we're not going to look radically different, have two heads or four legs or whatever kind of crazy thing might be the case. We're going to generally look like we do now. Now sometimes there's a little bit more fine-tuning. People want to know even further things such as, all right, so am I going to be a little bit taller? Am I going to have a full head of hair? How old am I going to be in heaven? And questions like that. Well, the Bible doesn't say about those things, but I think we can be confident to know that we will spend the rest of eternity not disappointed by the way we look. Amen? So there's going to be some significant similarities. You might be thinking that is great, but there are also, there's, there's going to be some upgrades too, right? Aren't there going to be some upgrades? Well, there's definitely an upgrade. Let me discuss some of these differences. Because our bodies are imperishable, we're never going to age. No more aches and pains. Slowing down, memory loss, nursing homes, wrinkles, gray hair, and so on and so on. We're never going to age. We're never going to get sick in these resurrection bodies. No more diseases, doctors, calling 911, emergency rooms, medications, chemotherapy, surgeries, hospital gowns that are embarrassing, right? We will never die. No more devastating phone calls. Funerals. Or wondering when our time might come. We will never sin. We will not do things to our bodies or with our bodies that go against God's will. Our bodies are going to function in full freedom. And also, I think we may have powers that go beyond what we now possess. I don't want to speculate too much. But I think it's interesting how after the resurrection, Jesus does things that he never did prior to his resurrection. Such as he he appears to just walk through a door and vanish out of thin air. I don't know if that was something that was unique to Jesus or if we will do likewise, but I do think that we will have powers that somehow we don't have now. Maybe we'll do things that Jesus was doing there. Or maybe there's other things that people commonly hope and speculate about, like maybe flying or feats of strength. I don't know. Regardless, I just know that it's going to be amazing. There's going to be a massive change, friend. Massive change. Philippians 3.20-21 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Listen to this, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Did you get that? Our lowly body will be made like His glorious body. Massive change. Does that get you excited? It's amazing. His resurrection guarantees our future resurrection. His resurrection reveals what our resurrection bodies will be like. So much to look forward to. Friends, all of these wonderful promises, though, are linked to the resurrection of Christ. 
They're given to those who believe in Jesus. They're not given to everybody. They're given to those who believe in Jesus. In John 6.40, Jesus said, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Whoever believes in Jesus... We must believe in Him. That means we must believe in His message. And His message is that we all stand guilty before God because we've all sinned. And since God is perfectly just, He's going to punish that sin. We cannot save ourselves. Right? Jesus would not have come to this earth if we could save ourselves. And so therefore, we need a Savior. We need someone who's going to be our substitute. And praise God, that's exactly what Jesus came to do. He came and He lived that perfect life. The life that you and I don't live. And He died on the cross to pay for our sins. And then He rose from the dead to show that He has victory over sin and death. And so when we turn from our sin and place our faith in Jesus, we are forgiven. We're reconciled to God and given eternal life. We don't have to earn it, work for it, jump through hoops. It's given as a gift to you. So friend, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, let me urge you to do so today. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Praise God for that promise. And if you're here this morning, and maybe you're just not quite ready for that, and you have some unresolved questions, let me encourage you to go home and start reading one of the Gospels and ask God to help you understand who this great Jesus is. We also have some resources out in the foyer there to help you in your journey so that you too would know the great power and the great hope of this resurrection that we celebrate here this morning. Amen? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You so much for the hope You have given humanity. We thank You that not only did You just escape death, but You conquered death. We thank You for the trustworthy witnesses who have passed down this testimony so that we might believe and confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and has been raised from the dead. We thank You, God, that because of what Christ has done, we can sit here and have a confidence of a future resurrection, that death is not the end of the story, that the candle doesn't just get blown out, and that's it. That there is truly hope found in Christ. And Lord, we also praise You that You've given us this glorious picture because You're a God who is so good of a resurrection body that's going to be like Christ, that's never going to age or get sick or sin or die, Lord, but will live forever in Your presence and with Your people for the rest of eternity. We praise You from the depths of our souls. 
Lord, we pray throughout this day, this glorious day, that our hearts would be filled with great joy and adoration of You for what You have done. And Lord, if there's someone here today who's never truly experienced the hope and the power of this resurrection morning that we're talking about, that Lord, today might be that day. When it says in that verse we just read, they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised Him from the dead. Lord, we thank You, we bless You, we praise You for this wonderful time that we get to gather as a church and to sing Your praises. It's in the wonderful and matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.